отношения, афары, схесси, сарка, афарс, Hello, my name is Ben Horton, and you're listening to the latest episode from the International Affairs Books Podcast. This is the second in a new series from Chatham House, which presents some fascinating discussions with major authors who recently featured in the book reviews section of our journal, International Affairs. For this episode, we took a trip to the London School of Economics to bring you a conversation between Tarek Bakawi and George Lawson. Tarek Bakawi is reader in international relations at the LSE and the author of Soldiers of Empire, a new take on the lives and experiences of soldiers from the British Imperial Army in Burma during the Second World War. As you'll hear, Soldiers of Empire is an ambitious work which challenges the orthodoxy of military history and describes an experience of conflict which has far-reaching implications for the present day. Tarak's interviewer is George Lawson, Associate Professor in International Relations, also at the LSE. George was one of a number of reviewers who wrote about Soldiers of Empire in the November issue of International Affairs. You can read this review forum online, and I'll give you all the details at the end of the episode. But for now, I'll hand over to George and Tarek. Nice to talk to you today, Tarek, about your wonderful new book. Why don't you start by telling people what the book's about? Thank you, George. Well, at one level, what it's about is the Indian Army and the British Army and the British African forces fighting the Imperial Japanese Army in the Burma campaign in the Second World War. Um, and the book sort of you know, lays out what it was like to be in that war what it was like to train, what it was like to fight the Japanese, and what it was like to serve in multicultural um, in a multi multicultural military formation instead of a national army. That's at one level. Uh, at a more deep level, this army should not have functioned if we go by the military sociology that, and the military history that is developed out of the study of Western national armies. Almost all military sociology takes as its object of analysis a national army. And in fact, if you look at the entirety of military sociology, most of it is about the American army, the British army, the German army, with sort of bit parts from the Chinese, the Russians, the Israelis, and a few other national militaries that show up there. And the debates, the theories, the development of the debate over, over time has all been shaped by the fact that both the researchers and the armies they study are in national context. But historically, armies are much older than nation states. Imperial, multiracial, and multicultural armies are much more the historical norm than nation states. Uh, national armies, as we know them, have really only developed over the last 150, 200 years. And even national armies are full of foreigners and various kinds of imperial forces. And so the military sociology we have that explains such basic questions like how soldiers fight, how, or why soldiers fight, how soldiers are made, are all based on national armies. But what would that debate look like if we started from a multinational, multiracial, imperial army serving the people who colonized the country rather than their, their national government? How would we understand soldiers then? And that's what the book is really about. It's, it is a theoretic intervention 
into the debate over military sociology on the back of the Indian army as its empirical, as its empirical material. And that's fascinating. There's lots to talk about there. So the first level you talked about was this fine-grained, granular account of a particular campaign in a particular place during World War II, but you want to extend that into making some wider claims about why soldiers fight, uh, how they might be best organized, thinking about armies as an ancient institution, but also in your particular book as a imperial institution. I wonder if we could start just on that first level, the issue of this granular detail and the lived experiences of these soldiers in this campaign, and what do you draw from that in terms of the wider concepts we have, the wider vocabularies we have to speak about this issue, the wider theories that we might bring to bear that go beyond that particular campaign? Well, there's a number of, uh, a number of issues involved in that, as you're well aware, George. Um, one of them is uh, simply a, a preference, a desire almost, to work with granular historical materials in my scholarship. I like that. Mm. I want to get down close to the ground. I want to understand how it is that these things practically uh, occurred and developed. Um, and I, I work, as you know, archivally uh, with primary sources and things of that sort. Um, and so that, I, you know, it's a scholarly style mm. at one level. At another level, what it is is a fundamental commitment. Um, uh, I believe that social life, political life, what we study uh, in the social sciences is always historical, it's always located in time and space, it's always specific, it's lived through categories that in people's heads that are, you know, particular to their biographically determined situations, the cultures, the polities that they're in, and so we have to pay attention to the particular. At the same time, soldiers are soldiers. They're raised up in an institution where you know, officers in one country are reading what officers in another country are doing, or they're all reading historical texts about how to drill soldiers. And they are applying general techniques to a particular local situation. So all armies are a local realization of general techniques of how to raise an army. Uh, and often those general techniques are in a direct heritage or genealogy where people are reading and developing the same body of literature about how to train people. So there is this granular focus captures what is sane and different about social life. It captures these general techniques as they're operating in and through a local context, and it captures the local context as the general te techniques are done to them. And I, you know, universities are that way. It's a general kind of thing, university education, but it's always locally realized in particular circumstances. Mm -hmm. And so in my scholarship, not just in this book, but in general, I try to bring these two levels together in the sort of actual historical agents who are living the general issues that I'm seeking to explore. And I think that's, that's how I would, um, you know, this is historical social science. It's a three word answer to that. But the interesting thing is you're working effectively from the particular granular detail of your archives and the soldiers' stories when they're writing letters home and the lived experiences of their lives during these campaigns, and you're working from that to build a conceptual apparatus, to build a theoretical architecture. And often, social science works the other way around. People mm. start with their vocabularies and their theories, and they seek to illustrate it or test them against yeah. Uh, particularity against history. Yeah. So it's fascinating that you work the other way around. You talked about general techniques that you can draw from the soldiers that you engage with on this particular 
campaign? Do you want to tell people a bit more about the way that your soldiers do give us general apparatuses, general yeah. techniques, general sure. concepts we might use for, for other settings? Yeah. So I think here the word that is, is worth thinking about is contrapuntal, which is Edward Said's word about the, the kinds of histories we need, which are contrapuntal histories. Um, and they're histories that serve to raise questions, to uh, sh show up what we take to be the normal situation like a national army. Um, and so an imperial army in my hands in this book serves as a kind of counterpuntal story to the story of the national army. Now one of the things that goes on in the study of national armies, um, which uh, as I'm sure many listeners will realize is shot through with patriotism, you know, commitments to the nation sort of colored by blood and sacrifice to the flag and all of this, is that soldiers when they come home will often say they did it for the nation, mm -hmm. they did it for political reasons. If they're asked about why combat in the Asia Pacific Wars against the Japanese was so brutal and merciless and why they had to do things like kill people who were trying to surrender or make sure that dead bodies were really dead, they will turn and blame the Japanese. The Japanese waged war this way. You can't do anything reasonable with a crazy fanatic Japanese. They locate the blame for the kind of combat that developed on the Japanese, and they express it through a kind of national racism. Well, if you're only using national troops, and if you have, as frankly many military historians do, a kind of naive view of accepting what a, a historical agent says as somehow the motivation for their action, you would be led to believe, in fact, if you were a right-winger, um, that you know the Japanese really are fanatics, um, and that's why we had to fight them this way. Mm -hmm. And if you're a left-wing person, you'll be inclined to believe that the U.S. Marines or the British soldiers in Burma were racists, mm -hmm. um, and they developed their racism, you know, through school and reading the me in the media, and had a whole kind of racist attitude to the Japanese when they went out to fight them. But if you discover that Indian soldiers mm -hmm. who were illiterate before the war, who are taught to read during their military training, and consequently the, you know, the British then give them propaganda because they get worried they'll read Congress stuff and so on. If you were illiterate before the war, you didn't even know who Japan was, but you go out to Burma and you develop the same style of fighting as the US Marines or the British soldiers, and with, when asked about why you fought the Japanese this way, you suddenly deliver the same litany of racist stuff as if you'd always been thinking about how evil the Japanese were, you suddenly realize this doesn't work as an explanation. It's a post hoc account that is helping, helping soldiers make sense of what they had to do in battle, of what it was that went down out there in Burma, of the very difficult circumstances that soldiers on both sides found themselves in. And that forces the researcher to find different kinds of answers than the really rather easy ones about national racisms or political ideology or patriotism, or of course another one that we haven't talked about today, which is the fighting for your buddy yeah, story, yeah. Um, which is another one of the classic sort of statements that somehow is supposed to explain why it is uh, that we have something called combat discipline, where units of soldiers throughout history will trade casualties with each other. It's fascinating. So the, the historical social science you're talking about might ask a familiar question, why soldiers fight, how are they made? But if you put that in a setting that's unfamiliar, you ask why 
Indian soldiers fighting in an imperial context against the Japanese, why do they fight? Then the answer can't be national culture, it can't be straightforwardly political ideology, it can't be straightforwardly band of brothers. It forces you to look elsewhere for your explanations. Yeah. That's the promise of this granular analysis. It isn't just getting the detail right, it's using that detail to tell us something we otherwise wouldn't spot that's important about why this particular institution functions the way it does. If it's not those explanations, then what explanations do we have for why these soldiers fight and how are they made? Yeah, well, you're asking the, my <laughs> basic answer to that is go buy the book. <laughs> you'll, you'll, you'll find out the story. It's not a um, done it, it's a clue. <laughs> <laughs> the, uh, um, you know, the way that you, you put that, uh, I, I think there's some lazy answers. They fight for their country, they fight for their buddies, and scholars have kind of more sophisticated ways of saying that. But those are the, some of the answers that they offer, and certainly that's a kind of common sense. And so it's that laziness of explanation, I think, that the Imperial Army fighting the same war that the National Army is fighting. And, you know, Burma is a kind of, you know, um, you know everybody is there. Not only are, do we have East and West African formations, you know, Indian soldiers from all over India, the Japanese are also recruiting Koreans and others to fight. And yet everyone in that context, regardless of where they're from, um, uh, fights in a similar style. And this forces you to get other kinds of explanations. Here I make a number of moves, and let me uh, uh, um, say just a few of them. One of them is um, to pay attention to the question, uh, if I can use a big word, of modernity. Um, people have regarded the military as somehow a modern institution and a Western institution. Uh, and those two things are, are sort of you know, confounded yeah, together, yeah. right? Um, and in a funny way, the mark of the Western military uh, in its heyday, drill, is somehow seen as a kind of rational training thing instead of what it is, which is a ritual in which you move your body uh, together in time while giving voice, the very definition of any kind of ritual activity. Um, and once you begin to see this as a ritual, um, you begin to understand that there's something very common to armies across quite wide spaces of, of space and time. That the Roman army, um, the Zulu army in Africa, the uh, Japanese um, uh, uh, regular forces, Indians who opposed Alexander the Great in North India in the third, I'm not gonna get my BC centuries right right now, but nonetheless, you know, lots of people have figured out how to drill infantry and make it fight in a regular way. Um, and this, that is a very different kind of explanation than they did it for the nation where they, um, you know, they, they believed in certain ideas that, that allowed them to somehow suppress the fear that they feel, feel in the field, of the, the field of battle. It sounds like a sociological explanation. It, it you're is looking a... at drill, you're looking at ritual, you're looking at the ways that social institutions and social practices help to formulate particular modes yeah. of being. Yeah, it is absolutely a, socio a sociological explanation. Another piece of it, also sociological, um, you know, in the kind of national military literature that we have, a battlefield becomes a place where national soldiers demonstrate their particular national style. Japanese soldiers, bonsai, you know, American soldiers break and run initially, but then come together very quickly and figure out creative ways to get the enemy. There's a, a kind of way in which the battlefield becomes a theater for the national style of soldiers. When you get down to the granular level of combats in Burma, 
you realize that while national style is, of course, never effaced because people are in particular national um, military institutions, each military institution, as I was saying, has its own local characteristics and so on. So I'm not saying there's no national style, but you realize there's a great deal of similarity, say, in perimeter attack and defense in Burma. And this leads you to think about structural accounts of why soldiers do what they do. That when military forces oppose one another on a battlefield, a, a set of patterns and dynamics typical to that battlefield, typical to the engagement of those two kinds of forces arise. In Burma, one of the things that was going on is that neither side felt it could surrender. The Japanese were told they would be mistreated if they surrendered. The Allied troops were, were told and had good evidence that they would be mistreated if they surrendered. So soldiers on both sides started deciding that they were going to go out fighting. And often this meant that if they were wounded, they'd play dead and take one of the enemy with them when they could. And this created a dynamic in which each side had to make sure the other side was totally dead before they went anywhere near their bodies. So it became very difficult to surrender, even if you wanted to surrender. Even if you loved the Japanese and you were in the Indian Army and you were laying there wounded, you couldn't, you, you, you know, you were going to get stabbed in the back by them because they're going to make sure you're dead. It's a structure. It mm -hmm. operates on you. It doesn't matter what you think about it. It's going to punish you if you don't go with it, what, what it's asking of you. Mm -hmm. And to think about a conflict and a battle as a structure formed by the interactions of opposing sides is a very different perspective than conceiving the battlefield as a kind of theater for the demonstration of national character as much popular military history uh, reads. And this again is part of the power of you know, actually getting into what it looks like to be in a perimeter in Burma in, Jap in, in, uh, in the Second World War and attacked by the Japanese and understand how that battle flows. But it's fascinating to hear you talk about structure. I mean, you're getting away from two binaries here that are really important. The first is the particular and the general. So you can find the general in the particular. You can work that way around. These aren't binary opposites. They're not even necessarily a trade-off. They're both co-implicated. Mm. You just need to ask a particular question and then look from there. It's the same thing with structure and then lived experiences and micro stories of the soldiers that you're telling. That mm. here, are, here are at least two major structural forces that are, in the strongest possible sense, is determining what it is that these soldiers are experiencing and, and at least very large parts of their behavior. One you've mentioned is drill. The other one is battle that both of those are these social structural yeah. forces that we can find in the choices, behaviors, and lived experiences of these particular characters. So again, you're saying there's no necessary trade-off here between agency structure, like you're saying there's not necessarily a trade-off between particularity and general. We can find them both in social life uh, where we look for them, but we have to craft their co-appearance in these, these vital, interesting well, ways. Well, their co-appearance is particular to the situation that you're studying, and it takes particular forms. I mean, I'll, I'll, I'll uh, uh, give you another one, which is determination contingency here. Um, I think battles are, there's a great deal of contingency, especially at the tactical level. Who dies, who doesn't, you know, who takes that hill, who doesn't, what happens on that uh, in, a, in a particular local area. Um, and I think one of the things that is extremely difficult for soldiers to deal with because the consequences of these contingencies are, are death and wounding of friends, of you know, um, circumstances you, you know, are almost beyond any kind of normal uh, you know, social situation. 
Um, afterwards, they have to come and make sense of what happened. And that is the place where they draw on the various kinds of national political narratives that uh, propaganda has made available to them, education has made available to them, other soldiers have made available to them as they sort of evolve a way of talking about what's, what's happening to them. And there you then can reposition there's sort of stories and narratives about what they're they're doing, which kind of unfolds a kind of story where it all all the pieces fit together, um, and this is sort of what you oppose to the kind of brute contingency that I was sitting here and I lived, and my friend next to me the bullet went right through his head and he didn't, right. and so I got to come up with a kind of thing I got to order that somehow and make it seem ordered as if it all had a purpose. And that's where patriotism and stories about racism and fanatic enemies and so on, all can be characters in this story by which you order, which really is not orderable. Um, because at some level there were brute contingencies in battle. Mm. Um, and so that contingency determination thing, I think, is another, another sort of piece of this. I'll ask you a question. You mentioned this big word, modernity, and it mm. comes up with a couple of the contributions to the forum. I remember it coming up in Robbie Shilliam's contribution and also that by Mike Williams as well. So the two big structural dynamics or forces that you talk about are drill and battle. Now both of those have this ancient dimension to mm. them that you've mentioned. You can find them in plenty of locations before we the onset of, of what we understand to be modernity. However, they're not static. Mm. Their content and character changes, drill varies over time and place. We talk a lot in the contemporary world about the changing nature of battle. Mm. How much does that affect your argument about their generative force? And are you then talking about a very specific meaning of drill and battle in the context you're talking about? This is a World War II book, at least in that respect. Mm. Or are you talking about something that has a broader trans-historical, transpatial reach? Mm. I think the, the simple answer is... is you know, both those things are true. Here, one of the things that I, I always feel it very significant to say in a world, and I'm sure this is also true of the pages of international affairs, in a world obsessed with drones um, and with high-tech forms of warfare in which many people think that battle is disappearing, war yet again is being fundamentally transformed by the arrival of some uh, new technology. I think it's very important to remind ourselves that most of the fighting going on right now in our time frame on planet Earth is basic infantry combat with the same suite of weapons that would have been familiar to Indian soldiers, Japanese soldiers fighting in Burma in, in World War II. Rifles, machine guns, RPGs, hand grenades, mortars, most of the killing uh, and dying uh, in that social relation we call war is being done that way not by drones. So the sort of continued utility of basic infantry combat, of training up infantry soldiers, whether that's being done by militias and insurgents who also have to train to fight, whose forms of training are, look a little bit different, but they still line up straight, respond to voice commands, do things in order, battle drills in order to, to figure out how it is to function on battlefields. These things are still very, very much in evidence. In yet other ways, of course, everything is the same. It's also different. Uh, of course, warfare has been transformed. 
uh, not least by the arrival of nuclear weapons um, and other uh, kinds of uh, uh, macro-political changes that have gone on. Um, and here, interestingly, I would say that the world has come a bit closer to me. Um, militaries, even within a national military, uh, any actual unit put together to go and perform a mission will have a lot of soldiers who are pulled from different parts of the armed forces. You may need your bomb disposal people, your communications people, the person to communicate with the drones. Maybe you have your propaganda, civil affairs person along. You know, there may even be a legal person right there. So the, the, the notion of a military is something that has to put together very disparate people and train them up to function like a machine is nowhere more in evidence than in the kind of small group um, missions that Western professional militaries are doing now. Even more so, the, as I point out in the book, uh, uh, um, in a couple of places, um, you know, imperial multiracial, multinational armies uh, may have ended uh, with decolonization. Uh, but UN forces, which in many cases draw on some of these same uh, ex-colonial forces and put, together, put them together with some of their same uh, previous imperial patrons and served in mixed peacekeeping units are still very much part uh, of the world after 1945 and of, and, and of the contemporary world. So the multinational, multiracial army uh, is still, uh, uh, still very much in evidence. And I take the latter point well and I take your point also about the ongoing importance of the regular infantry. But to go on about stuff that is changing and not just the macro-political mm. nuclear weapons stuff, uh, we don't have mass conscription anymore. We saw that war and society link is to some extent not as generative as it once was. We have more of war at a distance if you think about various forms of, of virtual warfare and that's aided by other forms of technology and so on. There's a, there's, a, there's a speed and a distance to how war is often experienced. And of course, there are current debates around gender mm. and the military and around sex more generally and the military. And again, a couple of the contributors to the International Affairs Forum picked this up, uh, Patricia Owens and Paul Highgate. Does your book speak to those kind of debates about the way that gender is constructed and generated through, through war and militaries? Well, the book... Um the book does say quite a bit about um, military masculinity and the way in which um, hegemonic masculine, uh, you know, warrior masculinity is one of the things that in different cultural versions British and Indians shared. And it was one of the markers around which they could bond uh, in training and on, on, on campaign. Um, so the book talks about the utility of masculinity for overcoming racial and national difference. Um, and for bonding together uh, soldiers in, in, in quite some interesting ways, both in the Indian Army and the, in the British Army. And in that sense, um, the book does have a fair bit to say about this. Uh, it does not theorize gender principally, right? This is not a book which um, is looking at overall into the relationship between gender and military service or gender and war, which is a, 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 an even bigger subject. Um, and, you know, and, and as I say in my response in the forum, that I design the critical apparatus for this book to speak to race and nation. That's what I was taking apart, because those are the issues, as I was explaining earlier, that are so much at stake uh, in this kind of nationalist military sociology that we have. But I could easily imagine taking the uh, way in which various kinds of cultural phenomena become fluid in the hands of the military. Let's invent the Sikhs as a warrior people. Let's 
let's make sure that they all have their bangle and they have their dagger and they have various uniform items and then we're gonna we're gonna we're gonna codify this as what the real Sikh is and use that as a way to integrate Sikhs into the colonial military. One if one were minded to do so, you could do that with LGBT troops. You could do that with immigrant troops. You could do that with female troops. If there are many ways in which we can we can bond together uh, military units around the manipulation of cultural phenomena that the military um, is arguably ex excellent in doing. I mean, look at all the insignia that relates to local places, um, all the kind of informal um, cultural stuff that rises up around military units that, that are signs and totems they care about themselves. Integrating LGBT and gender stuff in this way is a use of the critical apparatus of soldiers of empire to speak uh, to gender and, 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 and other kinds of issues, uh, but it's not something I fully realize in the, in the text. Well, if the research program that comes out of it is, is a vibrant one, and I know you're going to do some work on Korea next, which we're all looking forward to. I thought I'd finish just with a slightly left field question. What didn't you do in the book that you would have liked to have done or don't think you did enough justice to? Uh, so the you know when you do this kind of uh, transdisciplinary work, um, you feel that you're always an amateur in everything that you that you do. Um, you're always just learning about a new field. And for me, um, I'm not a South Asianist. I don't have languages. Um, and if there's something I wish I were able to do that I didn't do, it is to you know because I started this book um, working on this book in the in a serious way in the late '90s. Uh, when many World War II veterans were still alive. Um, I wish I had gotten myself out to North India uh, and to Pakistan and, and to some of the regimental centers. And even without languages, uh, I just had some conversations with these veterans and had more of their voices unmediated by the colonial archives uh, that I mostly used to access them. Um, that's easily the thing that I feel uh, is the biggest sort of gap uh, in the text. So we're finishing where we started off with the particularity of these particular stories and these particular characters and what they can tell us about wider concepts and theories and vocabularies. The promise of historical social science. Tara, <laughs> great to talk to you. Thank you, George. And that's all we've got time for on this episode of the International Affairs Books podcast from Chatham House. For more episodes, please visit our website at chathamhouse.org slash multimedia slash podcasts hyphen audio. To read the review forum which accompanies Tarek's book, go to chathamhouse.org slash publications slash IA. And for all the latest news about international affairs content and events, you can follow us on Twitter at IAJournal underscore CH. Thanks very much for listening.